Well, when Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election, some would say it was the greatest political upset in American history. Less than two weeks before election day, Clinton had a clear lead in the polls, with Trump estimated to have only a 15% chance of winning. The Democrats seemed confident of victory. But then the tide shifted. The FBI reopened a case against Clinton, and by the time election day rolled around, the results had swung in completely the opposite direction to what had been expected. Of course, Trump's presidency has had deeper repercussions since 2016, but even at the time, there was a sense of disbelief and dis disappointment from many people around the globe. Uh, politics can be a constant source of disappointment in our own country as well as overseas. And apart from politics, there are all sorts of ways that disappointment can affect our lives. Uh, disappointment in relationships that don't go the way we expected. Disappointment about plans that have to be put off again and again. Disappointment that life hasn't turned out the way we thought it might. And as Christians, I think it can be quite common to feel disappointment as well. You might look at the state of the church and feel saddened that God's people can sometimes be such a poor witness to Jesus. Maybe you've had dreams of serving Christ in exciting ways and seeing the world changed by his love, but you've been let down over and over again. Your sin still draws you away from God. The world is corrupt. Injustice and hatred often win. It doesn't seem like Jesus is on his throne. Well, last week and this week, we're looking at a tiny book in the Old Testament called Haggai, which actually has a lot to say about disappointment. And even though the people in this book are historically a long way removed from us, our situations actually have a lot more in common than we might first think. Uh, last Sunday, we heard God's message to us from Haggai chapter 1. After 70 years in exile in Babylon, Israel had finally returned to Judah, the promised land, and things were looking up. God had spoken to his people through the prophet Haggai, and even though it was a word of rebuke, the people had responded, and now they'd started to rebuild the temple, the location of God's presence and glory among his people. Perhaps this was the beginning of all of God's promises coming true. Surely it wouldn't be long now before an Israelite king, a son of great King David, was again on the throne and Israel became a powerful nation once more. Well, after finishing on such a high note at the end of chapter 1, uh, let me read the beginning of Haggai chapter 2, another message from the Lord. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not look, not, does it not seem to you like nothing? 27 days after the end of chapter one, after the Israelites started building the temple, God speaks to them again. And he starts by asking the people if they remember the original temple, 
the one built by King Solomon on the same site as this new temple. And God asks, how does this one look in comparison? Solomon's temple was destroyed before the exile, so 67 years earlier, so there wouldn't have been many people alive who still remembered it. But whether or not the Israelites standing there had actually seen Solomon's temple with their own eyes, they would have heard of its glory and beauty. Now, the book of 1 Kings gives detailed descriptions of Solomon's temple. It was built from large blocks of high-grade stone, the inner walls clad in cedar wood, transported all the way from Lebanon and covered in carvings of flowers, palm trees and cherubim. The walls and floors were then overlaid with gold and there were bronze pillars decorated with pomegranates and lilies. There were basins, pots, shovels, lampstands, all made of bronze or silver or gold. It was truly spectacular. And as the Israelites in Haggai's day gaze at the foundations of the new temple, much smaller and less impressive, built by a nation suffering economic hardship, the comparison would have been crushing. All their hard work has resulted in colossal disappointment. Well, we'll skip over the next few verses and come back to them in a moment. Uh, but after bringing up the disappointment of the temple in that first message, we read about another reason for disappointment in the second message. Uh, God tells Haggai to go to the priests to ask them a series of hypothetical questions. The role of the priests, as well as making sacrifices and looking after the temple when there is one, was to interpret the law God had given them. And so Haggai is to ask them these fairly technical questions about holiness, or to use the language in the passage, uh, consecration and defilement. Uh, so let me read from verse 11, and then we'll try and work out what exactly is happening here. Uh, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, uh, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Well, it's a bit of a strange conversation to our ears, isn't it? But for the ancient Israelites, questions about holiness were vitally important to their daily lives. God's law, especially in Leviticus, was very clear about the many ways you could become defiled or unholy. For example, you could be defiled by eating certain types of food, like pork or shellfish. You could be defiled by some skin diseases by molds in your house, by childbirth and menstruation for women. Now, notice that defilement is not the same thing as sinfulness. The purpose of these laws in the Old Testament was to constantly remind the Israelites that they were not clean and holy. And so without regular effort on their part, it was impossible for them to be in the presence of a holy God. 
So there are two hypothetical situations concerning holiness that Haggai asks the priests about. Uh, firstly, situation one. Uh, imagine you're carrying some consecrated meat in the fold of your garment, a common situation I know for most of us. This consecrated meat would have been meat that had been offered as a sacrifice to God. And for most offerings, once the blood and fat portions of the sacrifice had been burnt on the altar, the rest of the meat could be cooked and eaten by the priests or by the one who brought the offering. So in this hypothetical situation, the meat that had been consecrated by being offered to, as a sacrifice to God is being carried, uh, presumably home from the altar, so it could be cooked. And it's been carried in the fold of a garment. Now, the robes that people wore had enough excess material so that you could carry whatever you needed to fold it in the fabric. Uh, for example, a piece of raw meat. It was their uh, best alternative, you might say, to those foam meat trays from Woolies or Coles. And the question for the priests is, if the garment that was holding the consecrated meat then touches something else that's neutral in this point, like some bread, uh, does that bread become consecrated as well? In other words, can holiness be passed from the meat to the garment, to the bread? No, of course not, the priests reply. You can't pass along holiness like that. It's not a game of Chinese whispers. Okay then, in the second hypothetical, uh, there's this person who's been defiled by touching a dead body. Uh, the most likely situation is that a relative has died, so this person has been preparing their body for burial, which meant that you were classified as unclean for seven days afterwards, and then you could purify yourself. So if we again consider this piece of bread, what would happen if the defiled person touched the bread? Does this defilement pass from the person to the bread? And the priests again give a resounding answer, yes. The law is clear that an unclean person will defile everything they touch. That bread is defiled. So although holiness can't be passed along, it seems that unholiness can. That's all very interesting, but then God makes it clear why he's asked these questions. Just like the defiled person, Israel has been defiled, not by a dead body, but by their disobedience to God, their neglect of the temple. Instead of building the temple as they were meant to do, the Israelites were trying to appease God by offering sacrifices on the altar. But because of their disobedience, the Israelites' defilement had defiled their sacrifices. And so shockingly, they were offering unholy gifts to a holy God. Uh, let me give you an illustration so we can understand just how horrifying this is. Uh, imagine a bride on her wedding day, in her wedding dress, pure white and beautiful. And then someone offers the bride a gift of dog poo. In fact, they come and they smear that dog poo all over the train of her dress. That's what the Israelites are doing with their defiled sacrifices when they offer them to a perfectly holy God. It's inappropriate and disgusting. 
And God explains in the next few verses that the reason the Israelites have been experiencing scarcity and disappointment in their lives is because of their unholiness, their disobedience in not building the temple. Because their sin is contagious and pervasive, it's infected every part of their lives and brought failure and disappointment. So there are two reasons for disappointment. Uh, First, instead of a spectacular temple, the people have a small, unimpressive temple. This is despite all their hard work, all their obedience to God. And instead of bountiful grain and wine, the people have failed harvests because of their contagious, pervasive sin. When they've obeyed God, it's resulted in failure. And when they've disobeyed God, it's also resulted in failure. These Israelites just can't win. Where are they meant to find hope when all around is disappointment? We can look at our own lives, I think, and feel the same way. When we've faithfully followed God's path and been disappointed. We've poured ourselves out in loving others and people have just taken advantage of us. Or we've given from our finances self-sacrificially and ended up struggling to make ends meet. Where's God's goodness and generosity at times like these? How are we meant to deal with this kind of disappointment? And then there are times when we're really confronted by the sin in our lives, the ways that we're not living up to God's perfect standards. We know we've been made new and we're filled with his spirit. So why is it still so hard to defeat sin? Why do we struggle with it again and again? Our own failure to live in step with God can just be profoundly disappointing. And God knows this. God knows that life can be disappointing. As I was talking about this sermon uh, with a friend recently, I realised that God has been using this chapter to highlight some of the things in my life that I'm disappointed by at the moment. When friends don't come through for me, when ministry feels hard, when reading the Bible is boring, it doesn't make me feel joyful, when my own heart is selfish and bitter. Life just feels disappointing. Jesus has died and risen again. He's promised me fullness of life with him starting now. So why doesn't life feel better? Well, God in his mercy meets us in this disappointment and he gives us hope. God gives us present hope that is tangible and experiential and also future hope that is certain and glorious. After pointing out the disappointment of the new temple, uh, God immediately follows with words of encouragement and comfort. Be strong, he says to the leaders Zerubbabel and Joshua, Be strong, he says to the people. Be strong and work, for I am with you. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. The Lord reminds them of his wonderful promise from chapter 1 that he will be with them and he will be faithful to them, just like he's always been faithful since he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. This is hope that's immediate, and tangible for the Israelites and for us as well in an even richer and fuller way. 
God has shown his faithfulness to us through becoming a human in Jesus and dying in our place. And because of Christ, we can know perfect love that drives out fear. His spirit living in us transforms our experience of life so that fear and disappointment don't have the final say. And similarly, after pointing out the disappointing contagiousness of sin, God again gives his people encouragement and comfort. Rather than continuing to curse the work of their hands, God now says, from this day on, I will bless you. Despite their former disobedience, God will now graciously bless their obedience in beginning work on the temple. Yes, their sin is contagious and pervasive. Anything they touch, they defile, and there's nothing they can do about it. But God tells them he will do something about it. He responds to their small act of faith with abundant grace, coming in his holiness to consecrate their work on the temple and bless them. Defilement is more contagious than holiness, but God's holiness completely overturns expectations. That's why Jesus' work of healing in the Gospels is so radical. When Jesus touches the man with leprosy or is touched by the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, those people rightfully should have defiled Jesus. But instead, Jesus' holiness was even more contagious, more powerful. Instead of being defiled, Jesus' touch heals them. He rids the man of his defiling skin disease. He heals the woman who's been, who, of her defiling bleeding. God's holiness completely overturns expectations. Like in Haggai and in the Gospels, Jesus responds to our small acts of faith with abundant grace coming to us and blessing us. Even if we think our sin is too ingrained or our motives too mixed, when we trust Jesus as our saviour, he comes to us in his holiness and love. All we have to do is stretch out our hands in need and we have the certain hope that he will be with us and bless us. In response to disappointment, God graciously offers us present hope that is tangible and experiential. But in the end, God's promises for present hope in Haggai didn't ultimately change things. The new temple that the Israelites were building was destroyed in 70 AD, and the Israelites' contagious sin didn't magically disappear. 500 years later, after the events of Haggai, the Jewish leaders were the ones who demanded Jesus' death. The kingdom of Israel never returned to its former glory, and there was a never another earthly king in David's line. For us who are part of God's church, our situation has quite a lot of similarities with God's people in Haggai's time. We've seen God's promises fulfilled in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and we've experienced God's amazing power at work in our lives. But we're also still waiting like the ancient Israelites, we're waiting for God to return. And that's where God's hope, not only for the present, but also for the future, becomes significant. God also promises certain glorious future hope, both to the ancient Israelites and to us. Uh, let me read from chapter 2, verse 6 of Haggai. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. Ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of this wonderful promise. He's the perfect temple that all the nations will desire, the image of the invisible God in whom all of God's glory lives and who brings peace between God and humanity. And when he returns on the last day, Jesus is the one who will shake the heavens and the earth, as we read about in our New Testament reading from Hebrews 12. And then in Haggai chapter 2, verse 21, God uses similar words to give more hope for the future. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah at that time, and he was also a descendant of King David. The Lord tells Zerubbabel that he will put him on as his signet ring, which was a seal of a king's authority. Although there hadn't been a son of David ruling as king in Israel for decades, God promises he will reinstate the line of David, that a son of David will once more rule on the throne in Israel. Zerubbabel himself never became a king, but 11 generations later, Jesus was born from the line of Zerubbabel and David, a king who overturns thrones and shatters the power of kingdoms. This is God's solution to the disappointment in our lives. When all our hard work for God results in frustration and failure, and when our sin seems too contagious and pervasive to ever overcome. Christ is coming to make all things new, and that means a comprehensive overhaul of everything, ourselves and creation included. A shaking of the heavens and the earth, an overturning of thrones and kingdoms. The reality of our lives can often feel disappointing. It can feel like Jesus isn't on his throne. But that's not the truth. Although the prophet Haggai didn't know he was talking about Jesus, his messages from God point to the true temple, to the true king in the line of David, our Lord Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews sums it up. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Well, let's thank God now and worship him in our next song together, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Please stand as we sing together.